This morning, we have a guest preacher, Matthew Kay, is with us this morning. Matthew, come on up. Welcome. Well, good morning. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Amen? Amen. I've only been here a couple times, and there's a lot of love in this church. Is that true? I I, I feel it from you. I'm a friend of Nate Sims. You know this guy, right? Uh, I work with him on staff with Crew Church Movements. We do a lot of fun things together, like a table talk outreach. We do evangelism trainings. Uh, I got a chance to do something called Becoming a Cojourner here at Lighty's uh, just a few weeks ago and got to know some of you face-to-face and a little bit of heart-to-heart. And even just being here and talking with a couple of you this morning, it's a joy to be in the presence of the Lord together with brothers and sisters in whom His presence dwells. Amen? And so, uh, thank you uh, for inviting my wife, Erin, uh, for welcoming my family. I'm here with my, my wife, Erin. My mom, Lydia, is here. I've got three kids, Caleb, Chloe, and Levi, 14, 11, and 7. And it really is a privilege uh, to be worshiping with you all. Uh, you know, as we were worshiping together, I was reminded of the fact that we worship at the same throne every Sunday morning that our brothers and sisters all over the world worship at. Isn't that amazing? We, work, we worship at the same throne that you read about in the book of Revelation where there are saints and angels worshiping around the throne. We're worshiping at the same throne as them here on earth as they are in heaven at the same time. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. We get to participate in that. And this has been the, the, the big thing lately. This isn't even the sermon yet, but the, the, this is the big thing lately, though, is that we get to participate in the very life of the Father. It could be like spirit. That's why He came, that we could be like as sinners, completely forgiven, cleansed of our sin through the blood of Jesus, and then brought in and incorporated and have our very lives woven into the life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's something about God's heart that uh, I pray, and I invite you to pray with me, that we would hear God's heart as we hear His Word this morning, that His heart is to incorporate your life fully, to weave your life fully into the love and joy and peace and presence of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Lord, Lord, as we come to you this morning... We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for washing us through the blood of Christ. Thank you for calling us your very own. And Lord, it was prayed earlier when we pray again, if somebody here doesn't yet know you, that they wouldn't leave this place without having come to an encounter with the living God that changes their life. And Lord, for us, Lord, I pray that that, that for those of us who know you, it's already begun. Whole rest of our time would just be a continuation of the worship that's already begun. That we would just behold you And in beholding you, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another because this is why you came, to make us more like you. So, Lord, have your way. We pray that you would get me certainly out of the way and make yourself so fully known, adored, worshipped for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When um, our older ones were younger, we loved reading to them. Oh, we still love reading to our kids. Uh, But we... Uh, went through the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. Some of you have read through that series. Some of you are familiar with the series. If you're not familiar with the series, 
It's a series of books where children are whisked away from our world into another world, and in that world, they're caught up in epic adventures of rescue, but they're also caught up uh, in an epic battle between good and evil. And there's one of the main characters is a lion. His name is Aslan. And if you know anything about the story, Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. He represents and symbolizes Jesus Christ. And so I always love when Aslan comes into the narrative because it's the presence of Jesus coming into the story. And whenever a child, especially in a one-on-one interaction, I always love when a child comes into the presence of Aslan because Lewis is trying to tell us something about what it looks like for you and me to come into the presence of the true and living God. And so I always love an interaction between a kid and Aslan, especially if it's the kid meeting Aslan for the very first time. And so in a book called The Silver Chair, which is one of my favorites of the whole series, how many of you have read The Silver Chair? Is there a couple of you? Oh, a bunch of you, great. I love when this girl Jill meets Aslan in the land of Narnia, Jill Pole. And she's whisked away into to the land of Narnia, and she's completely scared, separate, completely lost, and the one schoolmate, Eustace, that she was with, she got separated for him, from him, and she's lost in the woods all alone, scared to death, and now she's thirsty, and she sees a stream, and she does what you and I would do, she starts to move towards the stream because she just needs desperately something to drink. And as she goes towards the stream, she notices that there's a lion standing next to the stream. And now she's got two things going on in her heart. I'm desperately thirsty and I'm desperately scared to get close to that lion. What am I going to do? And her thirst keeps bringing her closer, but the lion's now standing there and she can see the lion and the lion can see her. And she ain't saying anything. And then the lion says to her, if you're thirsty come and drink. And she doesn't do anything or say anything. The lion says it again. If you're thirsty, come and drink. And her internal dialogue starts to crank up. What if this? What if that? Should I go closer? She still hasn't said a word to the lion. Third time, aren't you thirsty? She says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. Uh, Okay. But if I come and drink, will you go away? Will you you go over there somewhere? Nope. I'm staying right here. Uh, Okay. If, If I come and drink, will you promise not to do anything to me? I make no such promise, child, said the lion. And Lewis picks up the story from there. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing, she, not, not noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? Swallow, she says to the lion. Wimps, said the lion. And the lion didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I, I can't dare to come and drink. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming one step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. There's no other place to go to quench your dying thirst. And so 
Jill is faced with this tension. And the short interaction between Jill and Aslan highlights a tension that you and I often feel when we come into the presence of the true and living God. We often come to Jesus with two things inside of us. One, we've got a deep thirst that only he can quench. And two, sometimes we want God to surrender on our terms and conditions and not on his. And we've got this tension inside of us. I'll drink as long as you go away over there. Or I'll come near to you as long as you promise not to do anything to me. Or I'll follow you as long as I get to keep control, lordship over my own life. We often want God on our own terms. And ironically, we want Jesus to accept us just the way we are, but have we considered the fact that Jesus wants us to accept him just the way he is too? We want Jesus to accept us just the way we are, and praise God he does. Jesus accepts us just the way we are. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus accepts us just the way we are, amen? Amen. But he loves us far too much to leave us the way we are. See, he doesn't promise not to do anything to us. He actually wants to transform us, invite us into a life of repentance and transformation in his spirit by his grace. He wants to make us more like him. And so, yes, Jesus accepts us just the way we are. But do we accept Jesus just the way he is too? Because Jesus wants us to accept him just the way he is. And he also loves us far too much to change the way he is, to accommodate our mere wishes and desires, to accommodate to our terms and conditions. Jesus is too good for that. And he does far better than that. Jesus doesn't always give us what we want, but he does give us what we desperately need from him. And so this is the tension as we come to John chapter 6. In John 6, 51, Jesus says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh And by the way, there is no other bread, just like there is no other stream. The the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now listen to that phrase for a minute. The bread that I give for the life of the world. For the life of the world. He came for the life of a dying world. And I want you to know something this morning. God's heart towards you is good. Amen? God is good all the time, and God's heart towards you is good. It was read earlier, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to reconcile sinners back into a life in and with God. Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have life to the full. He said, I say these things to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. He wants us to participate, to have our lives woven into the very life and love and grace and presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus does everything that he does to bring glory and honor to the Father in the Spirit. 
And the Father does everything that he does for the delight of the Son in the Spirit. And then taking that, this delight, this joy that the Trinity has in one another, the Trinity, God, he does what he does to bring glory and joy and delight to the other members of the Trinity, and he also does what he does so that sinners like you and me can be redeemed and come participate in that very life, in that very joy, in that very glory, in that very love. So this is the heart of God. I've come for the life of the world. I've come to give you life. But when we add something to the mix, like we want Jesus on our own terms, it causes us to not be able to hear his heart towards us. Our sin has a way of blocking us from wanting Jesus on his own terms and keeping us from seeing how good his heart is toward us. And so, if you want Jesus on your own terms, and in that state of heart, when you hear his word, like Jill, instead of hearing his heart to save you, to quench your thirst, to give you life abundantly, instead you're tempted only to think, Jesus is threatening me. He's threatening my control over my own life. Or he's threatening the way that I want to think and the way I want to live or the things I want to do. Or worse, like Jill, he's going to do something to me that I don't like. He's going to take me somewhere. I'd rather not go. And of course, that might be true. But it's not merely threatening. It's only threatening to the sin that separates you from him. If we'd rather cling to that, it's going to feel so threatening. But if we want him, see, this is what love does. Love threatens all the things that will get in between the relationship. And so this group in the synagogue in Capernaum, rather than saying, you give bread for the life of the world, rather than saying, give me that bread. I want to eat that bread. I want to have that bread. Instead, they say, how can this man give me his flesh to eat? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus graciously begins to explain. Verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Down in verse 58, he continues, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And as Jesus begins to explain and move towards them in their questions, another question arises in their hearts. In verse 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so listen to the questions. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And maybe if you and I were standing in the synagogue in Capernaum that day, we'd be asking the same questions too. Can you imagine if I got up here and I said, hey, by the way, you need to eat flesh and drink blood. And we had no context for any of this before. How would your heart respond? These are the questions that arise in their hearts. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The questions in and of themselves aren't a bad thing, but it is the attitude of their hearts as they ask the questions. That's the problem. See, ironically, 
This is part of the same crowd that wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king in verse 15 after they witnessed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. But it tells us in the Bible that Jesus withdrew to a quiet place by himself. And why? Because he knew it was in their hearts. He knew they wanted to make him king on their terms and not on the king's terms. And so now the same crowd who wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king, they're not only grumbling at his word, but they're beginning to harden in that grumbling towards a posture of rejecting Jesus altogether. Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you were to see the glory of God that is veiled in this flesh? What if you were to see me ascend to the Father's right hand and be seated next to him in glory? What if you were to see that Jesus, the one who's speaking to you, is the very one who knit you together in his mother's womb, in your mother's womb, the very one who all your days of your life are written in his book? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? And in verse 63, he goes on, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. There are some of you who don't believe. And right there, Jesus drills down to the heart of the matter to the root of what will eventually harden this crowd's hearts and turn their lives away from him. They don't believe. It's their unbelief. And what's interesting, it's this unkim king, by the way, beneath all of their desires, even their desire to make him king, by the way, it's this unbelief that's been underneath all of their desires and all of their suspicions about Jesus this entire time. Faith, by contrast to unbelief, would have sounded like this. Lord, if you give bread for the life of the world, then Lord, give me that bread. I want to have as much of that bread as you got. Please give it to me. Do you remember the, the Samaritan woman? When Jesus says, if, if you would have asked me for a drink, Jesus says, I would have given you living water. Her first response was, Lord, give me this water. Sir, give me this water. I give bread for the life of the world. Sir, give me this bread. I want this bread. That's what faith would have sounded like. Faith would have sounded like this. If, if you say that the bread that you give for the life of the world is your flesh, and my gut reaction to that is, I'm offended, or I don't get it, or I don't understand what you're saying, Lord, then open my eyes that I might understand what you're saying. Help me, Lord, to see the glory and the majesty of what you're saying in your word when it offends me, when I feel uh, challenged, when I feel convicted by it, when I feel like I'd rather not say yes to it. Lord, help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Show me what you mean because I don't want my misunderstanding to cause me to miss out on the life that you're talking about. Faith would have responded like this. 
Lord, if the words that you speak to me are spirit and life, then I want to receive your word, and I want to receive your spirit, and I want to receive your life, and feed on them with every fiber of my being in the way that you're talking about. That's what faith would have sounded like. But unbelief? Unbelief doesn't seek understanding. Unbelief doesn't ask God for eyes to see and for ears to hear. Unbelief draws its own conclusions about what it likes or what it doesn't like or what Jesus said or what he really meant in what he said. Because unbelief, if it wants God at all, still wants God on its own terms. So when you hear things like, take up your cross and follow me, unbelief hears that as just a mere threat to one's own control over their own life. Faith says, Lord, I'll suffer for your sake if this means being near you and walking with you. Or when Jesus says in Luke, those who, give, who don't give up everything they have can't be my disciple. Unbelief hears that as a mere threat to one's right to possessions. Faith says, you know what, Lord? You're calling me to a life where I am not bound by the grip, the idolatrous grip of possessions and greed. You're setting me free from that. And I want to trust that you know how to take care of me better than I do. How do you hear God's word to you when he comes to you with these kinds of words that are hard to hear, difficult to understand? The early church father, his name's Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria, he invites us to behold in John chapter 6 how Jesus does not fully explain what he means to people who senselessly reject the faith without investigating. And the people in Capernaum failed to investigate. They failed to keep asking. Because if they asked, it would have been given to them. They failed to seek understanding, or else they would have found it. They failed to knock, otherwise the door would have been opened to them. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds. And to one who knocks, the door will be opened. Why? Because God is good. Amen? Amen? Because God is good. He says, which of you, if your child asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if your child asks for fish, you give him a snake? How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? But the gospel tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who didn't believe and who it was who would betray him. And verse 66 tells us that after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. And so how about you this morning? Do you believe that God's heart towards you is good in all that he says and in all that he does, even in those sayings that are really hard to understand? Do you believe that God's heart towards you is good and it's for your life and for the life of the world? And how does your response to God's word reveal what you believe about his heart towards you? I don't know about you, but for anybody who's begun the journey of trusting and following Jesus, you're going to hit that spot where you hear a hard word. You know what that feels like, right? 
where the Lord puts something in front of you and you go, ah, that's a hard one to accept. It challenges me to the very core. It calls me to surrender things that I've long held on to. Oh my goodness, Lord, Lord, you're calling me to go in that direction or you're calling me to go to that person or to forgive that person or to seek reconciliation in that direction or whatever it might be that's difficult and feels like taking up your cross and following him. All of us hit that spot in our journey with Jesus at one time or another, and we're going to hit those spots again and again and again, because this is part of the life of faith, sharing with Jesus in his joy, but also the fellowship of his sufferings and journeying with him in dying to ourself and rising to new life in him every day. Unbelief simply says, I'm not doing that, or maybe Jesus didn't really mean that. Or, oh, I like these portions of the Bible over here, but there's other things that Jesus says about the life of truly trusting and following him. I reject those parts. I can't accept that. And unbelief at its worst and at its core says, I can't trust that God's heart and his intentions towards me really are good. Oswald Chambers says that the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. And John 6 invites us to beware of this kind of unbelief and where it winds up if it's not healed. And so tragically, the people in the synagogue in Capernaum, they left Jesus and no longer followed him. Can you imagine? A chunk of the crowd, a crowd comes over around the Sea of Galilee to the synagogue in Capernaum to like, because they, they, they experienced the, the miracle of the fish and the loaves, but they, they failed to see its significance beyond bread. And as they get to the synagogue in Capernaum, they, they've come all this way, and now they don't like what Jesus is saying, and the same people who wanted to make, them, make him king are now walking out the door. Can you imagine what this must have felt like, looked like? And Jesus turns to the twelve in this sobering moment, and he asks them this question. Do you want to go away as well? How would you answer that question this morning? In your own words, if Jesus were to turn to you and say, do you want to go away as well? The German theologian Martin Luther, he said, whatever your soul clings to and confides in, that's really your God. That's your functional savior. And so what does your soul cling to and confide in this morning? The crowd in Capernaum tragically had something else that they'd rather cling to and confide in other than Jesus, and that's why they left him. I had read years ago that in some ancient cultures, people would try to trap monkeys by putting a piece of fruit in a jar, so say like a banana or something like that, and they put the fruit in the jar, and the mouth of the jar would just be wide enough for the monkey to get their hand into the jar like this, like shimmying their hand in. And here's where the trap comes in, is they reach into the jar just enough to get their hand in, and then they grab the fruit, and here's how the monkey is trapped. Can you see it? It's the very thing that they're clinging to that has them in bondage. And that's what sin does to us, right? We cling to and confide in things that keep us in bondage. And the strange thing is, 
if you could just say to the creature, let go, and you'd be free. To release your grip on this thing that has its grip on you, then you'd be free. But the creature won't let go of the thing that's in the jar. The creature won't be free unless he sees that there is something more beautiful, more lovely, more desirable, more wonderful outside of the jar than the thing he's holding on to. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires that there's nothing that in this world can satisfy, perhaps I was made for a different world. And there are desires in us that nothing in this world, nothing in the jar can satisfy. We were meant to look beyond the bread to the one the bread points to. And so we let go. And praise God, Peter sees it. By the grace of God, Peter sees it. Do you want to go away as well? Peter says, no, I'd rather have you, Lord. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's like the psalmist says, who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To whom else shall we go? I'd rather have you, Lord Jesus. Are you with Peter this morning? I'd rather have you, Lord Jesus. And so what is your response to Jesus and his word this morning? And what do you believe deep down about his heart and his good intentions towards you? As we close, perhaps you're well aware of some area in your own life where you've been rejecting or denying Jesus. Maybe it's not an outright rejection or an outright denial, but there's something secret. Maybe it's only known recesses of your heart. Maybe there's somewhere in the recesses of your heart or the way you spend your time or in a relationship where you're clinging to someone or something other than Jesus to be your Lord and Master, and it's got you in bondage. And maybe you've concealed it well, but it's time to let go, brother. It's time to let go, sister, because there's someone more beautiful, more lovely, and this thing doesn't even compare. Maybe you've turned your back on Jesus, like the people in this text this morning. And whether it's been for 15 minutes or it's been for 15 years, know this this morning. God's heart towards you is still good. God's heart towards you is still kind, and the door is still open today. Jesus loves you and is welcoming you to come back home to him, and God's promise still stands. Everyone that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, will come to me. And the promise still comes to me, I will never cast out. That promise still stands for you and me today. You see, people rejecting Jesus in John chapter 6 This isn't the first time, nor will it be the last time when Jesus gets rejected. You see, the rejection that Jesus receives here is but one of many rejections that he receives in his earthly ministry. Even the apostle Peter who said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Even Peter, in a moment of intense temptation, 
denies that he even knows Jesus three times. And the end of this chapter also tells about Judas, who turns away from Jesus, never to return. He eventually betrays Jesus and hands him over to be tried and crucified. But as Jesus is eventually nailed to the cross, as his flesh is nailed to the cross, and as his blood is spilled out on the ground, you and I get to behold by faith the truest, deepest, fullest meaning of everything Jesus said when he said, the the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Behold the body of Christ given for you. Behold the blood of Christ shed for you and shed for many for the forgiveness of our sins. For all the times when we were the ones who denied him or rejected his word. For all of the times that we didn't ask or seek or knock. For all of the times when we failed to see his goodness or we clung to and confided in someone or something for life that couldn't really give us life. He died, those things, Jesus died. And he died on the cross in offering the consequences of our rejection, our punishment in our place for our sins and secured the full forgiveness and pardon and participation in his very life for those who would turn from their sins and turn to him in faith. Amen? Amen. And Christ rose from the dead victorious over all of our sin and failure so that everyone who would come to him would never be cast out. Everyone who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And everyone who would receive the bread of life by faith would have their deepest needs met and satisfied because he came for the life of the world. Amen? Amen? So what do you desperately need this morning? Are you thirsty? Come to him and drink. Are you hungry? Come by faith and take hold of the bread of life. There is no other stream. There is no other bread. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see you and behold you. And you'd show us where in our lives we might have clung to or confided in something that was way lesser than the life that is truly life. And you'd open our hands to let go and then to take hold of you. We declare, Lord, there's no one greater than you. Who have I in heaven besides you? There's none on earth I desire besides you. Lord, would you make that the prayer of our hearts that we could say with the apostle, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Lord, we pray that by your grace that we would cling to and confide in Jesus for all of our days. And may we find in every moment, in every situation, how good you are and how good your intentions towards us have been this whole time. We praise you, O Lord, for you are good. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.